The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Well, two weeks ago, uh, we had the privilege to hear from Chase, and uh, he talked about Abraham and Lot and how there was a fork in the road. Uh, Abraham and Lot, their families were getting too big to travel together and to be together, so they needed space. Uh, so uh, Abraham gave Lot first choice. And Lot, like any other um, self-concerned man, uh, would pick the uh, part of the land that was the most fertile, uh, the most prosperous, and he grabbed that first. And then Abraham uh, took second pick, but the reality is Abraham made the wise choice. Uh, he, He chose surrender over self. And so he gave Lot the first choice. And then last week we had the privilege of hearing from Erez, uh, a, a tour guide in Israel, just a, a man of great wisdom about uh, the things of Scripture, especially in the Old Testament. And uh, he shared with us uh, just some great insight into Abram's travels and the places he was going and where he ended up. It was just fascinating to hear about uh, the things and to see them on the screen and to be with someone who is uh, so knowledgeable and has been there so long. He's been a longtime friend of Gary's as well. And so it was great to have him here last week teaching us. But today... God's wisdom alive and well, just like usual in Abram, as he chooses blessing over riches. Go ahead and turn to Genesis 14. We're going to spend a good chunk of our time together there in Genesis 14. Um, I'm going to summarize the first 16 verses. Number one, because we don't have enough time to read them all. And number two, I would do a horrible job pronouncing what you may read in there. So uh, you can go ahead and try to attempt it yourself while I'm talking, and i bring you up on the stage if you can get them all right. Um, it's pretty intense, the names and the cities and the people. Um, but in summary, powerful eastern kings and their armies had swept through the land of promise. And they swept through the outside, kind of the outskirts of the land of promise. And they were invading and just wrecking shop. They were just going crazy, invading these cities and taking over. And in the process, we see why Abram's decision was wise. Because in the process, Lot's land and people were conquered. And he was taken captive. So here's Lot being taken captive uh, from these armies. And uh, you had this situation where you got Abraham, you know, Abram, the, the uncle, and Lot, his nephew. Now, I don't know about you, but some of you might. I don't know. I have some extended family that maybe I'd hesitate uh, going to help them out. You know, you got some of those family members a little crazy. You know, you're at Thanksgiving, Christmas. You're like, I kind of wish they weren't there. Uh, You guys don't have those, right? Uh, I don't have those because they might be listening. Uh, But in this situation, Abram, he's he's a loyal man. He loves God. He loves his nephew. So what does he do? He takes an army of warriors and he goes to get Lot and his family back. It's kind of uh, reminiscent of what would come later with Gideon, where Gideon had his army pared down to 300, right? And he went and conquered. Even in his fear and in his being scared, God used him. In the same way, if you look at the scripture here, it says he had 318 men. That was it. 
Abraham took 318 men and went and rescued Lot and his family by God's power. Now, of course, we see that by God's power, right? Why did he take 318? Because 10,000 might have looked like Abram was something. 318, not so much. So he went and conquered uh, and got back Lot and his family. Maybe, maybe Lot had some family members that were really sweet, so that's why he did it. I don't know. Uh, but, so we have this victory, and it shows Abram's place on the international scene. Abram is gaining power, and he's gaining people, and he's gaining prosperity. So the scene now with Abram on the map of, of, of geography, you see him taking up more space and being able to show God's great power and the position that he's given Abram. So if you jump down to verse 17, we'll read those last seven verses in Genesis 14. After his return from the defeat, and we'll call him of Ched, because I don't know his full name, uh, King Ched, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shiva, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anner, Eschol, and Mamre take their share. So we see here that Abram, consciously, he chose to wait and he experienced God's blessing. He had a choice to make between material blessing and the blessing that God would give. And I love Melchizedek's blessing if you look at verse 19 and 20. He recognizes who his namesake is. Melchizedek was called priest of the Most High God and here he is in verse 19. What does he say? Blessed be Abraham by God most high. Verse 20, blessed be God most high. And then you actually see it down here in verse 22, Abram repeats it, God most high. So these two men, Melchizedek and Abram, they've recognized who was God? Who was in charge? Who was the one that even gave them blessings? Then you have the king of Sodom who's coming in and just kind of trying to make friends with a guy with money and wealth. And saying, hey, here you go. I'm going to hook you up. We're going to be friends, right? And Abram's like, no. I'm not having that. And so he stayed faithful in this time of blessing from Melchizedek. But I don't know about you, but sometimes I kind of get stuck when I look at the life of Abram. And we've been doing this for, for a few weeks. I get stuck kind of like um, I forget the past before Abram. It's like when we start with Abram, it's like a reset button that's been pushed because God chose him. And so now we move on from Abram and oftentimes we forget what happened before. And the reality that uh, there, there's some interesting things that happened before, even after the flood, before uh, Abram comes on the scene. Last week, I was able to attend uh, the LSU-UT game. 
And I was able to go with this crazy group of people uh, behind me. They showed this picture last week. Uh, Erez and those two jokers in the middle uh, are good friends of Gary's and, of course, shared some amazing stories uh, at his funeral. And, and so I, I, I was thinking to myself, like, imagining like the trash Gary would have been talking during this game, you know? We're going back and forth and I, I can just hear him now just talking trash at this game, especially to those guys, uh, especially the one on the end in the glasses uh, named Chase. Uh, he's a big Longhorn fan. But uh, but I, you notice I got to sit next to the big man, right? Erez, and uh, he was taking up some of my seat, but I, I was okay. Uh, <laughs> He, uh, he had his LSU cap on representing for Gary, and uh, it was just a great time together. But based on my seating assignment, I was able to hang out with him, and quickly I discovered I am going to be this guy's professor on football. He leaned over to me at the beginning of the game, and he goes, now how many points do they get for kicking the ball in between that thing? I was like, oh, Wow. This really is your first game, isn't it? Like, I thought he was just saying, oh, this is my first big game, you know, like I've been to other, you know, I've seen. The... No. I had to tell him everything. And I, I love the talks. So I didn't mind. I was just chatting it up with him, having a good time, having some stubs, brisket, nachos were amazing. But we were talking and hanging out. But I thought to myself, I'd be really stupid if I sat next to this expert on Jewish history knowing I was going to speak to you today on this topic and knowing I was pretty close to clueless on Melchizedek that maybe I should talk to this guy and say, hey, I'm hooking you up with this knowledge, right? You hooked me up with some of your knowledge. And so I asked him, I was like, hey, I'm about to preach on Melchizedek. Can you help me out here? I, I don't know a lot about him. You know, I've heard him. I've read in Hebrews about him, and, uh, but I don't know a lot. And so he proceeds to give me a great, I mean, like, again, he likes to talk, I like to talk, he just started going. And Jewish history, and Melchizedek, and where he fits, and so he gave me a few insights. There's three different things specifically that he informed me about. One was he made it very clear that although Abram is the father of God's people, that there were righteous remnants of God followers scattered post-flood. So sometimes we forget about that. We start with Abram and we move on, but we don't remember that, hey, there was this guy named Noah and he did have three sons and although he was a screw up too, that these sons did see that he followed God. They did see these things uh, reflected in him by being obedient. And so these descendants of his were able to develop some belief in the middle of a horribly wicked time. And so this is something that he wants us to remember. And one of these individuals, he had a strong sense of righteousness and was even priest to the Most High God before Aaron came along. You know, this, this guy is a priest and he's a priest of the Most High God in what is known as a wicked country. He's the king of Salem, but he's the king of this country, this people that were wicked. So even still, you see outside of Abram and even a little before Abram that there's these pockets of believers, believers being in the Most High God, and they exist in small pockets, but they still exist. 
And then the third thing was, he said, this is what you need to do. You need to look up Temple Zero. I was like, okay. I looked at him like some of you are looking at me, like, I've never heard of that. Well, probably not, because it was only about a year ago. He said, look up Temple Zero, and my stinking phone was dead. So I was like, how do I function without my phone? Because I usually put reminders in there. My wife loves to make fun of me about all my reminders. And, uh, but I, I, that's how I get stuff done. And so I, I yelled down to Chase down the road, and, uh, the row there, and I said, hey, Chase, can you text me to look up Temple Zero later? So when my phone got power, what popped up? Text from Chase, look up Temple Zero. So I proceeded to look it up, and it was, man, it was really interesting. After doing some research, what I discovered was some very fascinating and faith-invigorating info. There's a man, Michael Hines, uh, director of what's called Israel Encounter. He wrote a recent article, not, not even a year ago, written about this encounter between Abram and Melchizedek. And he talks about this conversation he had with the man who discovered this Temple Zero. His name is Eli Shukran. And you can look him up, YouTube it, Google it. You can see this guy who is a a well-known, world-renowned archaeologist. And this guy, Eli Shukran, was on a dig near the Temple Mount. And he wasn't on a dig. He didn't know Temple Zero existed. But he's on this dig and he discovers these walls that are intact. Now, of course, that's an artist's rendering of it. But there are pictures you can see online of these walls and this stone where uh, animals would have been sacrificed and this channel where the blood would have rolled out. You can see uh, places where the animals would have been chained for sacrifice and a wine press and an olive press. All these things that would go into making a temple. And they're all preserved under rock and dirt for 4,000 years. They're dated 4,000 years. Now, what might strengthen your faith in the Word of God and the history of the Bible is that 4,000 years is when this story took place in Genesis 14. And this place was the place where the king of Salem existed, Melchizedek. And of course, we can't know for 100% certain that this is the exact place, but 4,000 years, king of Salem, king of Salem, Salem was the future Jerusalem where the temple would be built. And here it is uncovered after 4,000 years, and it's believed to be by these men as they continue to do testing where Melchizedek would have offered sacrifices to the Most High God. It's kind of blow your mind stuff. So as I was researching, man, it was just hard to pack into to one sermon, but it's fascinating. This, this man, Eli Shukran, he says, you've heard of the first temple. He asked, this is Temple Zero. This small sacred area has been positively dated back almost 4,000 years to the time of Genesis when the enigmatic Melchizedek was king and priest of the Most High in what was known then as the small hilltop fortress of Salem. Alongside the altar, there are niches carved in the rock for the slaughter of sacrifice of animals, a wine press, and olive press. He says all other temples have been destroyed, but Temple Zero was preserved. This is kind of interesting. So as we discovered two weeks ago, God protected Abram by having Lot choose Sodom. Abram knew who to listen to in this situation, and it wasn't the king of Sodom. 
Abram received the blessing of Melchizedek and rejected the riches of the king of Sodom. So there's two things I want us to consider at this time and maybe reflect on, meditate on, maybe write them down and ask yourself or, or reflect on these statements later. But two things, when we are consumed by what this world has to offer, God's intended amazing blessings for us are diminished in our minds. You think about that statement. When we are consumed by the things of the world, it doesn't mean that God uh, lacks power. And his blessings aren't special. His blessings are amazing regardless of if you believe him or if you trust in him or not. He is always amazing. But the problem is we get caught up in the things of this world, the, the challenges of this world, the, the, maybe our jobs or a promotion or our family or, or school or being successful or the next trip or, or being great at this sport. Whatever it is, we get caught up in the temporary we get so consumed by it that God's blessings that he wants to give you are diminished and we see it as, eh, I guess I could take it or leave it because we're wrapped up in this world. The world has its grip around us, but contrary to that, when we dwell on and live in the tremendous blessings of our God, the cares and trappings of this measly world are diminished and we live in a different way that points people to Jesus. When people see you experiencing blessings and they see you experiencing life, but they see you that you don't rise and fall based on what happens to you. But you have this consistency knowing that you serve a great God that's greater than anything this world has to offer. That's a different way of living. That's an attractive way of living. And when you look even at the New Testament, when people were, were uh, first called Christians, you see that it was an attractive thing. People saw them and they saw them acting differently than the world. They saw them that their hope was in something else. Just like Abram, his hope was in something else, the Most High God. Alan Ross in Creation and Blessing states, the realization that both victory over the world and promised blessings come from God alone enables the believer to discern the danger of accepting worldly benefits and to wait for the untarnished blessing. It's so easy for us to accept blessings from the world and put stock in those and to find fulfillment. But the reality is, it's temporary fulfillment, right? I love, I love to travel. I love to do things like, whether it's like going snowboarding or going to the beach or going to Philadelphia to see my family. I love doing those things. I'm all about it. Ask my wife. She gets so annoyed because I talk about that stuff all the time. What are we doing next? She's like, just calm down. Just live here, all right? Relax. I get excited about these things. But what I find myself doing is getting excited about the stuff and the trips and the, and the fun and, and, and these things with my kids. And it's not, I'm not saying these things are evil in the, by themselves, but when we allow ourselves to get wrapped up and when they start to dictate what we do and they start to dictate how we feel and it drives us, that's when it becomes sin when we don't see God as our great reward. 
So beyond this account in Genesis, there are two other mentions of Melchizedek. One in Psalm 110, verse 4, but also an entire chapter in Hebrews. If you want to turn over there to Hebrews 7, we'll spend the rest of our time there. Hebrews 7, the, the author of Hebrews gives a detailed uh, lesson on Melchizedek in this chapter. It's pretty powerful insights that he gives in Hebrews chapter 7. We'll look at the first three verses to start with. It says in Hebrews chapter 7 verse 1, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues the priest forever. There's a lot of speculation on this passage. A lot going on here. Some say Melchizedek was Jesus who appeared to Abram. But then that would mean Jesus was reigning as a king of Salem. So that kind of breaks down a little bit. But the reality is in this passage, it helps us understand, look, this guy who's mentioned comes out of nowhere. You look at the Old Testament. The Old Testament talks about genealogies all the time. And that's what made you who you were father and this and his father and his father. So they get wrapped up in genealogies and that's who you are. That's your identity. But here we don't see any genealogy from Melchizedek. There's no history of his birth. There's no history of his death. It's really fascinating. But the reality is that he was king of Salem and there's an author, Jeffrey Kranz from overviewbible.com. It gives a great insights on this. So saying that, look, Salem is means full, complete, or uh, peaceful. And then we have the comparison, the parallel there, Jesus is Prince of Peace. There's all these parallels between Melchizedek's life and the life of our Savior. The author of Hebrews argues that when it comes to really outstanding human beings, Melchizedek actually trumps Abram. That Melchizedek is the one who's actually considered the priest of the Most High God. And to that point, we see evidence of this and the reality that Abram, what does he do when he gets these spoils of war? He tithes back to Melchizedek. He gives a gift to this priest of the Most High God, recognizing his priestly order as superior. So it's a fascinating thing to to consider and to look at. But when we kind of understand and maybe research that a little bit more, we see that Abraham, he looked up to Melchizedek. Aaron looked up to Abraham. That puts Melchizedek's order a little higher than even Aaron's priesthood. In the same way that Melchizedek was considered greater than Abraham, Jesus is always greater than any leader that has come before him or will be after I don't know if I even need to bother and tell you this, but if you're looking to a government to fulfill any of your, uh, your needs or wants or desires or even hopes for the future, uh, it is a bad idea. Now, yes, God sets kings in place and he, he puts leaders where they need to be for a time, but the reality is our hope is not in a government. 
Thank God. Our hope is in Jesus. Jesus is better. Jesus is the one who exceeds far beyond these leaders that are set up. You know, the author of Hebrews, he was writing to persecuted Christians. They were persecuted Jewish Christians living among devout Jews. So if you're living among devout Jews, believing in a Messiah who they say never even came yet, you're in for a lot of trouble. And so this writer is trying to encourage these people to say, hey, it's okay. We don't have to follow the priesthood of Aaron as far as sacrifice anymore. We have a different priest. We have a better priest. And he's modeled by Melchizedek, this better priest named Jesus. Isn't it great to know that we have a better hope than the existing broken system? Look at verse 19 of Hebrews 7. For the law made nothing perfect. What a great statement. The law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. He's telling these Jewish Christians, hey, it's okay. You're being persecuted, but guess what? The law made nothing perfect. The law just showed us that we needed to continue sacrifice over and over and over again. But no, here is once for all. Here he is. He's introduced a better hope in the way that we get to draw near to God, Jesus. That's how we draw near to God now. Look at the end of the chapter, verse 26 through 28. <clears throat> it says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. What a great story. We no longer need sacrifices over and over and over again. We have somebody who finished the work on the cross. He came once for all and conquered death. You never saw those lambs hopping back up off the altar, did you? Those bulls, they didn't come back to life. Jesus was offered on the cross and he showed his power over death, his power over the grave. So as we consider this, I just want us to maybe follow it up with a focus on three different areas. First of all, number one, we need to learn from Abram. We need to learn from Abram to stop replacing eternal rewards with lame worldly things. God's reward is greater. In the temporary, it might feel like these rewards, like the pat on the back or being acknowledged or experience this amazing thing is better. But no, God's reward is greater. Number two, learn from Melchizedek. Stop serving other 
priestly things and recognize you serve a different priest. And what I'm saying by that is this. Oftentimes, we're not necessarily just like these Hebrew Christians who might have been tempted to continue with these sacrifices and the legalism with it. But instead, sometimes we replace that with things where we try to impress God. We create kind of our own little priestly line and our own little sacrifice. And we start performing legalistic acts thinking that they make us acceptable to God. Like sitting here in this service. I made it to church today. God loves me more. What? No. It's great you're here. I'd love for you to be here every week. But oftentimes, we as humans, we create these systems. And just like the people that lived in those days, they're creating systems that are abolished. That Jesus sacrificed himself. And no longer do you have to be a slave to legalism. You don't have to be a slave to trying to impress God. Because some of you are impressive people. But it doesn't matter because nothing you do can out-impress God. You can take your measly efforts and throw them in the trash. God is the one who is impressed, but impressed by his son. He's not impressed by you. He's impressed by his son at work in you. So that when he sees you, he sees someone who's perfect forever. What? Doesn't mean you're not a sinner, but it's Jesus who is perfection. Jesus is perfection. And he lives in us as we trust in him. And he allows us to be a light and to live differently. The third and last thing, final thing is learn from our Savior. Learn what the Savior did. He gave everything for us. And in turn, it's not a legalistic obligation, but it's a privilege for us to give everything for him. He gave everything. And we have the privilege to give everything for him. For those of you that are in this room, maybe you're listening, you're like, I don't know about this Jesus stuff. I'm not sure what's going on in this room right now, but I've never really considered this or maybe I've rejected it. Today's the day. Today's the day to stop, you know, making excuses and saying this or that and just say, look, I don't have all the answers. I don't pretend to have all the answers, but I know there's a living Savior. And he can change your life. Trust him today. For those of you in here that know Jesus, You've allowed the things of the world and the trappings of this world to, to intertwine itself with your life to the point that you get more satisfaction over that than knowing Jesus. Maybe today you need to have a time of confession. Saying, God, I want your blessings. I want your reward. Not what this world has to offer. Let's pray. Dear God, we're so thankful that you didn't leave Abram alone. You didn't leave Lot alone. You didn't leave your people alone. You didn't leave these Jewish Christians alone. And you don't leave us alone. You sent your Savior, your Son, 
You sent the Spirit, the Comforter, to teach us. We are thankful. Lord, for those that don't know you, I pray that they'll be convicted even now to trust in the finished work on the cross, that they can look to you as their Savior and admit their sin, but recognize that you can change their lives. We thank you that we get to live in that, live in victory, the finished work on the cross. We praise you for that. Pray that we will go out and live differently this week in reflection of that. In your name we pray. Amen.